CIUTFM would like to thank everybody who made a contribution during our fall fundraising campaign. Your kind financial support keeps this community radio station alive on the FM dial and on the World Wide Web. If you haven't donated yet, we still need your help to reach our goal of $100,000. Donate now at www.ciut.fm and show your appreciation for unique, independent programming that cannot be heard anywhere else. On me, Clayton Book here, broker with PSR Brokerage. And when you buy, sell, or lease your next property with me, I'll donate 5% to CIUT on your behalf. Find out more at movewithclay.com. At Sellers and Newell Secondhand Books, we have a large collection of books about jazz. They cover the history, styles, the musicians, and their recordings. Many of the books are housed in a bookcase next to our piano. We need the piano because not only can you learn about jazz here, you can hear it as well thanks to our live music series. Sellers and Newell Secondhand Books, 672 College, and SellersandNewell.com. Great books and other cool jazz. From the roots up, CIUT 89.5 FM. Toronto. Uh, hi, it's uh, Sherry Genovo, The Radical Reverend Show. Our, our theme music wasn't working this morning, but yes, you're in the right place. And uh, and hopefully we'll get it up maybe for the end of the show. Um, the joys of Spotify, folks. Uh, at any rate... Um, do stay tuned because this show, as certainly the first half of the show, is all about health. And there is nothing um, Canadians value more than that, we thought, we think. Uh, in fact, some years back, Canadians voted Tommy Douglas as the... Uh, you know, most famous and desire and deservedly so Canadian for bringing Medicare to Canada. First, of course, in Saskatchewan, his home province, and then it uh, he convinced the Liberal government to bring it in across the country. So we're going to talk about where our Medicare system stands right now with probably the best person in Ontario to talk about this. Uh, she has been the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition for 20 years. Natalie Mara, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, thanks for having me, Sherry. Yeah, it's a delight. Um, and uh, if you could just speak up a little bit, um, uh, we're, we're doing a new system today, folks out there in listener land, and that is uh, record, we're, we're basically talking to our guests through Zoom. Um, problems with the phone lines, the joy of independent nonprofit radio, um, which, <laughs> and so please, please keep donating. <laughs> we, uh, we're still taking donations on the Radical Reverend Show here. Just go to CIUT.com. FM to the website and hit donate. Uh, it couldn't be easier. Uh, but for now, Natalie, um, so you, you heard my intro. Uh, Canadians, we Harry, thought... I'm we, sorry, you know, I can't hear you through another person speaking. Oh, yeah. So um, we, we were talking about um, the joy of Medicare and how Canadians value it. Uh, and yet we've got this conservative government in Ontario that seems to be privatizing. Can you talk about that? <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm sorry. I can barely hear you, but, um, and there's someone else speaking kind of in the way. Um, sorry, I don't know what the question was. Uh, oh, dear. Okay, can we do this? Can, um, can we just phone you? We'll, we're going to put you on the phone, Natalie, because... Okay. Can you hear this? Is this I can better? hear you now, and the other person is not speaking. Oh, good. Lovely. Okay, we figured it out. 
Sorry. No, no, it's okay. I'm sorry. We're sorry. Um, So, you know, these are all the kinds of things just to make a pitch that you can help with if you donate to the station. Um, So, Natalie, let's start again then um, talking about healthcare in Canada and the fact that we as Canadians value our Medicare and we value it so much. We voted Tommy Douglas, you know, the most famous or should be the most famous Canadian for bringing it in. Um, And yet yet something quite uh, adverse to Medicare is happening in our province of Ontario. Can you talk about that? What are the changes that you're seeing? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, honestly, I have been either on the board or the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition for 27 years. 27? Oh my goodness. And I have never seen, it's never been this bad. Um, This week, we're going to put out a report on the closures of emergency departments across the province and also obstetric units, so birthing and maternity units, ICUs and local hospitals. These are the most vital services, you know, locally. I I mean, every service is needed, but these are the most urgent of services. And there are literally hundreds upon hundreds of closures of these services across Ontario. And there's no doubt that the pandemic would have taken a chunk out of staffing, no matter what. However, it could have been managed better. But the fact is that the Ford government is is purposefully, and I'm choosing my words really carefully here, they are purposefully starving the public system in order to privatize. Hospital funding this year is increasing by 0.5%. Um, I looked up inflation on StatsCan, healthcare inflation from September to September. Those are the most recent months. So that's a year from last September to this September was running at 5.6%. So far less than the rate of inflation. In economist terms, they call that real dollar cuts. Um, And so hospitals have no choice but to keep downward pressure on wages, even as we have the worst staffing shortages we've ever seen, to cut services or shrink services. Um, And we have literally emergency departments town after town after town after town closing down. At the same time that they're doing this to the public hospitals, they've increased the funding. There's only two private hospitals left. They're banned in Ontario since 1971. As, as they should be. So private for-profit hospitals are no longer allowed to be opened in this province. And they grandfathered a few in when they when OHIP started in the early 1970s. Um, and there's only two remaining private for-profit hospitals that do surgeries. One is the Don Mills Surgical Centre. And since the Ford government got elected, they've increased their funding by 278%. Diametric opposite to what they've done to the public hospitals, um, you know. It seems like the sky's the li- you know the limit for privatization. And at every point, when you look, these private clinics and hospitals that they're opening and expanding are charging patients in violation of the Canada Health Act for their surgeries on top of billing OHIP. So it's not cheaper by any means, and it's certainly not cheaper for patients. And not to go on too long, but they, we've also seen the same thing. They've privatized vaccinations. Um, they've privatized uh, COVID testing and allowed the private clinics to charge for COVID testing while they cut all public COVID testing, excuse me, during a pandemic. <coughs> um, they've, they're privatizing across the board. They're privatizing for the next 30 years, long-term care. They're privatizing the last public parts of home care. Unless we stop them, every part of the health system that someone wants to make money out of is going to be privatized. It's terrible. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, the public system is literally being run into the ground. This is shocking. And I I know that folk listening have experienced this. Um, I mean, I'll just give you a couple of stories. I just paid $300 at a shopper's drug mart for an RSV vaccine that my doctor recommended. $300, folks. Uh, (laughs) That's not free. Um, And uh, and was told that, yes, they are going to start to charge for 
COVID testing in in a while, not yet, but soon. Um, and uh, I had uh, a person in my congregation who, who uh, you know, an older person who was told, uh, and this has been going on for a while, as you know, I'm speaking here to Natalie Mera, by the way, um, who is the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition. And for 27 years, thank you. Thank you, Natalie. Um, but anyway, this person said that they uh, want, needed cataract surgery, uh, that the private clinic told them that, first First of all, they do it way better than if they were covered by OHIP. Second of all, it's $5,000 and they can get it done in a couple of weeks. And if they want it done under OHIP, they're going to have to wait months. So this was the pitch right out of the gate in this particular clinic. Um, And I was just shocked by that. And and this has been going on for a while, as you know. The other thing I wanted to, to touch base with you too is about operating rooms, sitting empty. This we're also hearing of people who have necessary surgery, who need necessary surgery, who have to wait and wait and wait. Maybe talk about that too a little bit. Sure. Well, I mean, one, I'm so sorry you were charged for an RSV vaccine. And I'm looking into why they're charging for them. I'm not, I don't understand that given that we've had such a bad year last year with RSV and this year it sounds bad again. And hospitals in Hamilton, for example, are full uh, again, and overflowing with patients with COVID and RSV and other, um, conti- you know, uh, transmissible viruses that could be controlled better um, if we just took the public health measures to do it. So I don't understand that. And I'm going to try and find out why, uh, on what basis the province, because under the Canada Health Act, you cannot charge a patient for a medically needed hospital or physician service. And that includes the services that they move out, you know, so that would include medically needed vaccines, that would include your surgery, all of the diagnostic tests associated with it, etc. For your similar sort of situation, but for your um, person in your congregation who paid $5,000 for cataract surgery, that's utter nonsense. That is just one, it's a, it's a really exorbitant price. In the public system, hospitals are paid $500 per cataract surgery, not $5,000. That's And it's a seven-minute surgery. And ophthalmologists, who are the surgeons that do them, are among the highest earners in our society. I mean, they're doing very well at that price from their OHIP billing. So they don't need to charge above that. But also, This thing about wait times, it's really bugging me. I went on just before the show started. I went and looked at the wait times. There's a website called Wait Times Ontario. And you can go and you can look up anywhere in the province how long it will take you to get whatever surgery. They track many of them and diagnostic tests. Um, So I looked up cataract surgeries in Toronto. And so they categorize patients, priority two, priority three, priority four. So if you need your cataracts done soon, you would be priority two. If, you know, they're not really ripe and they can wait, they don't need to be done, you're priority three. And then four is even, you know, you know, they're just starting or, you know, it could be quite some time before they really need to be done. Priority two patients in Toronto are waiting on average 22 days. That's it. Three weeks for their surgery. So any private clinic that's telling you, and 84% of people are getting their surgeries within the target time. So any private clinic that's telling you that you're gonna have to wait months and months and months, um, you know, to get it in the public system, la 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 la, and therefore you should pay thousands of dollars. First, it's illegal under the Canada Health Act. They cannot do that. And those patients can get their money back. They're not allowed to do that. It's unlawful and it's illegal. Um, and second, it's not true. And Natalie, speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show, if you're just tuning into Natalie Mera, who's the Executive Director of Ontario Health Coalition about healthcare in this province of Ontario. Um, so I know many people that have been told that and have had it done that. So let's talk about maybe the Canada Health Act, uh, you know, because I, I've heard this before, and I we sort of know that this should be true, right? But um, so where is the federal government on this? I mean, why are they being allowed to get away with this if it's illegal? That's right. So I think 
It's important for listeners to know what the Canada Health Act says, what we won when we won public Medicare in Canada, is that all medically necessary hospital and physician services have to be provided free of charge with no user fees or extra billing. So they can't bill OHIP and bill a patient on top. They cannot charge you for access to those services. They're not allowed to sell preferential access to people who pay extra money for those services and bump everyone else back in the line who may have greater need and lower income. The idea is that we get our healthcare based on our medical need, not how wealthy we are. And so I think people can understand what a profound threat to the future of public Medicare these private clinics are that are charging people all over the place now openly against the law for this. The federal government is supposed to uphold the Canada Health Act, and the provinces are also supposed to uphold it. And in Ontario, we have a our own legislation that kind of underlies the Canada Health Act. It's called the Commitment to the Future of Medicare Act, and it also makes it an offense. So it's illegal to charge or accept a, pay, a payment from a patient for any of those OHIP-covered services, and you can be fined and face jail time if you do it. However, no one at any level is enforcing it. It's kind of like long-term care. Remember, you know you know this well, Sherry, where we saw the long-term care, the for-profit chains take their money, millions, tens of millions of dollars every month during the pandemic while not providing the services. And residents were left in hair-raising conditions and some died of starvation and dehydration. Thousands died unnecessarily of covid um, and, you know, governments promised all kinds of change and so on, and none of it has happened. You know, the for-profit long-term care chains have lobbied against minimum staffing standards that ensure money goes to care. They've lobbied against regulations. They've lobbied against inspections and fines and so on. And they win. They win all the time uh, against the public interest. You know, and when you look at this government in particular, there are many, many very close connections to the Oops. Can we get Natalie back on there? Um, so technical difficulties today is the theme of this show other than healthcare. Um, maybe what we can do, uh, just speaking to our, our tech, is uh, Alice, is maybe we could get her on the phone. Maybe we can phone um, and Natalie up and get her back on the phone. I mean, personally, if you're listening to this out there, I mean, I'm... I'm sitting here in, in shock because although I suspected that uh, that this kind of practice is against the Canada Health Act and that should be illegal, um, I know so many people that are paying these prices. Uh, in my case, I told uh, I, I told you about getting a three hundred dollar vaccination that was a, and there was a prescription for it, by the way, from my doctor. Um, so again, um, this is con this is in contravention of the Ontario Health Act, and uh, and yet it's still going on. So um, uh, so are, do we have Natalie back on? Natalie? Hello, Sherry. <laughs> now you're on the phone. Yay. Okay. Oh, this is so much fun. <laughs> Technical <laughs> difficulties. So here's the question then, and you, you kind of alluded to this, that, that you know, they're winning. The, the privatizers are winning here. Um, but if it's illegal, and if I, for example, I mean, if... If, you know, I walk into shoppers, and I'll name them, <laughs> if I walk into shoppers with my receipt and say, I just learned that this is illegal to charge for a vaccine, I want my money back. And they say, and I can tell you what they'll say, is, oh, no, that's that's what the vaccine costs us, so we pass the cost along, it's not covered, you know, um, uh, so that's an instance, but certainly with the cataract surgery, which I know has been going on for quite a while now, that kind of, and 5,000 seems to be the going rate. Um, so if that, if this person that just had that done uh, says, okay, I want my 5,000 back, and they say, mm, no, um, what are our rights? Like, can we, <laughs> what can we do? Yeah. Okay, so there's two different things there. One is this RSV vaccine that, that they're charging for the RSV vaccine. That is in shoppers in this case. Mm -hmm. That is the Ontario government that is not covering it. So, so it's been delisted. Okay? It's been delisted from OHIP, basically. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's not, I don't, was it ever listed that they're not covering it and they should be? If mm-hmm. it's, you know, if physicians are saying it's medically necessary and it certainly seems so. And my question is, does it show efficacy? Like, are they not covering it because it doesn't show medical efficacy? Or are they not covering it because they're trying to engage in cost savings? Um, so the provincial government has to be pressured around the RSV vaccine, but we need some answers to some questions around that. The vaccines where they're charging for the COVID vaccine, for example, in the private clinics, they're not allowed to do that. That is illegal. COVID vaccines are covered. They show efficacy. Um, and so they can't do that. So no one should be paying for a COVID vaccine. Um, but uh, but so that's a little bit different. The cataract surgeries are covered. They're OHIP covered. And I should just tell your listeners, laser cataract surgery is covered. Any cataract surgery, by any method that they do the cataract surgery, is covered under OHIP. Don't let them try and pretend to you that if they do it with a laser, that it's not covered, which we hear from people all the time. That's not the truth, and it's illegal. <clears throat> and in that case, what uh, the patients can go to, well, they can come to us, and we can help them get their money back. You can do it through the ministry website, but I tell you, they don't make it very easy to find, Sherry. It's frustrating. Um, <clears throat> but, the, but both the federal government is supposed to pressure the provinces and withhold federal transfers, that's funding, for health care if they allow extra billing of patients. They're supposed to be penalized, almost like fined, for doing it. And the federal government does do it a little bit, but I tell you, nowhere near where it should be. And the province is supposed to enforce their own legislation, which says it's illegal. It's illegal to charge and it's illegal to accept payment. And they're supposed to be fining them and even putting people in jail for repeated offenses. And they're not doing that. And um, we're going to put out a, um, another report this week with 20 patients who have been extra billed. Our problem is that it's hard to get patients who will speak up to the media, like will help speak out publicly. And if anyone's listening and would help, we need you. Because a lot of patients will make the complaint, but they want to be anonymous. And that makes it more difficult. And I totally understand. But it makes it more difficult for us to fight this. Kind of like long-term care. You know, as long as nobody spoke up about the conditions in the homes, it was very hard to get the media to listen and report and therefore, you know, put pressure on the government to change it. The government knows it's happening. They're just not going to enforce it without you know, a Herculean effort from all of us to stop this. That's what's going on. Uh, and I do, uh, listeners out there, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show, uh, your host, Sherry DeNovo, and we're having severe technical difficulties today. So sorry. I'm talking to Natalie Mara, though, and um, executive director uh, for some 27 years for the Ontario Health Coalition that's really been, you know, at the at the front lines of fighting to keep Medicare, Medicare, which is, is slipping away uh, before our eyes. And um, and seemingly without a lot of resistance. Um, and I don't know why. Um, I mean, the provinces, as you know, Natalie, have met with the federal government demanding more money <laughs> for health care um, yeah. from them. With and, no strings, right? Yeah. I, I mean, this is absurd, especially when more money uh, that is going into the private sector than, than the public sector. Um, so, again, um, extremely problematic, but great information Thank you so much. If you know someone, uh, a senior who is in your family, um, somewhere that's that needs cataract surgery, uh, I mean, this was news to me that you can actually, if somebody's quoting you exorbitant amounts, um, that you can just say, no, I need it and I want it now. And the wait list isn't that bad and um, have it done through the public sector um, and have it done by laser. So this is all incredibly good information. And um, and and Natalie, just uh, you know, we've just got a few minutes left. So maybe let let people know how they can get in touch with Ontario Health Coalition if they do want to come forward and speak and tell their story because um, because that's that's so important. What what should they do? How do they get to you? Okay, well, that's great. Thank you so much, Sherry. Yeah, I really feel like people are being hoodwinked here. It's kind of like the old snake oil salesmanship. You know, they're telling people that they need to buy all these extra tests and so on and pay all this money, and they really don't. And it's mostly seniors 
for el- the elderly. It's really awful. So if anyone is willing to help or just fight back, we held a massive protest in September. We're going to do another one in May. We're doing sort of mass leafleting, and we're coming out with these reports um, to try and pressure the government. You can email us at OHC, so the acronym for Ontario Health Coalition, OHC, at simpatico.ca, or just go to our website and you'll find us, ontariohealthcoalition.ca. Um, uh, and um, we would love to hear from you. And we'll have. And if you just want to volunteer too, we have like thousands of volunteers across Ontario and health coalitions everywhere. People are wanted, and it's a social movement. You know, if we don't sort of build that movement to fight to safeguard our public Medicare and to improve it, the default is now that we will lose it. The privatizers are that strong. And uh, we know, uh, too, just to add to what Dadley's saying, is that the the vast majority of lobbyists walking in and out of Queen's Park these days are, guess what, yes. <laughs> uh, privatized <laughs> health care providers. <laughs> <laughs> so we know this for a fact. Thank you so much, Natalie. So Aww. sorry about the technical problems. We're going to go for a tune now and uh, see if we can't fix this. And we're going to come back <laughs> also talking about uh, what's being provided uh you know, through our public systems and what's not. And one of them is education. We're going to be talking to our own tech, Alice, about that in just a few minutes. So stay tuned and listen to this tune. Thank you, Sherry. (laughs) Bye, Natalie. (laughs) Bye-bye. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Tell me, which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Son, he'll be with you, fellow workers, until this battle's won. Tell me which side are you on? Uh, Never Gets Old, Pete Seeger, uh, Which Side Are You On? And you are listening to the Radical Reverend Show here, Sherry DeNovo, your host. Um, We are mainly talking about health care, and we're just about to have uh, Samir Boulay on, uh, doctor, uh, psychiatric resident at U of T, um, talking about health. Uh, You heard uh, the first half of the show, even though we had technical difficulties, the wonderful Natalie Mera, um, executive director of Ontario Health Coalition. But I I wanted to talk to our tech just 
for a few minutes. Um, Alice, uh, Alice, welcome <laughs> to the other side of the glass on the Radical Reverend Show. You are what is uh, considered an international student here at University of Toronto. And I was just shocked when you told me how much you're paying for your fees. Alice, how much are you paying for your fees? Um, I pay $60,000 a year. $60,000 a year uh, for an international student, which is how many, how, how much greater than, than local students and Canadian students? So at U of T, that's 10 times more than domestic tuition, which is actually twice as much as what other universities charge their international students. So there you go. Um, uh, so originally from China um, and uh, paying 60000 a year for, for what uh, our students uh, get for 10 times less. Um, that's not fair, and that's not public education. Um, let's go back to healthcare now. We're going to get Samir on the line. Samir, are you there? Um, I'm there, yes. Hi, can you hear me? <laughs> yes, I can. Yeah, um, so hopefully this, this is all good. We're, we're, we're working with Zoom because the lines are problematic. So thanks for okay. coming on. And, and uh, you're now a doctor. I don't think you were a doctor. Uh, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Uh, yeah. I've been working with you, with you actually for a couple of years now, and I'm a doctor. Two yeah. years into it. Well, congratulations. I should say um, uh, Samir and uh, the Radical Reverend Show met because he's part of Doctors for Defunding the Police. So thank you for that mm -hmm. activist work as well. Um, now you're a psychiatric resident, and we we mm -hmm. talked to Natalie about healthcare, mainly physical healthcare, and uh, some of the stories she told were hair-raising um, in terms of the illegal acts now <laughs> that are happening in mm -hmm. our province under the Canada Health Act and how... You know, that's not being upheld and they're not being prosecuted. Um, what's happening mm -hmm. uh, with mental health? Okay, that is a great question. And unfortunately, what I've been seeing, uh, I, I work right now in the CAMH emergency department. CAMH is the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, uh, downtown in the West End. Um, I've just actually finished an overnight 26-hour shift. I just got off and uh, it, 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 it's ridiculous. What I've seen, I've been working there since I was a first year medical student, basically up until now, in the early, like the late 2010s to now, and the volumes and the cases that you're seeing. And I've worked all around downtown Toronto, outside of the city, inside the city, especially in the emergency departments and on the street with the, what we call Actium Medicine. So going to people who are extremely ill and you know on the streets and dealing with these issues. And the volumes that we're seeing and the severity of the illness and the level of addiction and homelessness. And just last night, just to give an example, the amount of patients I saw last night that were unsecurely housed or were, did felt vulnerable to go back to shelter and we were trying to figure out ways to keep them safe or connect them to places that ultimately are not safe. If you've worked in these shelter systems now, the, uh, the amount of violence, drug abuse, the, these things that happen to people, it's unbelievable. And, you know, as a psychiatrist, we work sometimes to try to undo the trauma of the places that we're sending them to. We're traumatizing them sometimes. And it's it, it's ridiculous. I think what I've learned a lot from um, the senior doctors ahead of me who've been here for decades and seen all of the changes is this This is not normal. This is the, the volumes that we're seeing where, you know, when you're an on-call doctor overnight, you're supposed to be on-call. That means, you know, when a patient comes, if it's severe at the time, then, then we'll see them. The volumes that we're seeing, especially at, at this regional hospital, it, it never ends. It just keeps coming. It just, the, it's, it's shameful. And I think I was listening to uh, Natalie before us, and I think she did an excellent job, uh, at least for the part that I did here, about talking about, you know, the hallway medicine and, you know, the chronic underfunding, purposeful underfunding, if you know, you, you read any of the articles around the budgeting and what we've been doing. It, and it has real ramifications on the ground. And I think every single day, especially when you work in the emergency department or the inpatient unit, especially on the act teams, if you go in the community, you're seeing these policy decisions in real time. And, you know, it's, it's shameful because these are people that, you know, we can help, we can genuinely change the trajectory of their lives. But because of the socioeconomic statuses and things that are above our control that, you know, technically, I guess, historically weren't seen as medicine to some people. You know, to me, I, I think medicine is inherently political, you know, who receives healthcare and who doesn't. But, uh, you know, here we are. So I'm, I'm hoping we can do better. 
Uh, speaking to now Dr. Samir Boule, um about healthcare in this province. Uh, Samir, one of the things that uh, we're hearing, I'm uh, just on the news this morning, is that now uh, those who are homeless are using ERs as home yep. um, because yep. it's warm, it's off the street, and uh, and again, um, this I, I and for many of us, I mean, just a little because I'm old, right? So, <laughs> I mean, just to give some context to this, um, the first food banks came into existence in the 1980s. Um, Food banks weren't around. There was no such thing as a food bank. Um, I lived on the street as a street kid um, uh, and uh, and on social assistance, welfare was called back then, um, I could rent a room and go to school and feed myself. There is absolutely no way (laughs) you can do that on social assistance now. Even if you have a diagnosis, you cannot be housed and eat just on, on the money that the government gives you. So uh, ergo automatically homeless or uh, unhoused or uh, shakily housed. Uh, and mm-hmm. um, and there were two shelters um, for folk and mainly with people with quite severe mental health issues. Um, they did get attention, right? And, and mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. Um, there was housing at CAMH, then called 999 Queen Street. Um, there was mm-hmm. actually housing for people with severe mental health issues. They would stay in the hospital till they got better, like one should, right? Um, yeah. So, so, and, and it's and, and this is all about funding, right? Uh, but it's also yes. about social determinants of health. So maybe talk a little bit about that too. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, we still. So I work closely with a doctor named Andrew uh, Boozeri, who, if you know his work at U- UHN in social housing, his one of his whole things was bringing. I think he brought tens of millions of dollars of donor money and hospital money. And it was trying to build housing directly attached to the hospital system because what we're unfortunately stuck with is a system that doesn't see this as a healthcare issue some of the times when, you know, we have all the data, we have all of the studies where, you know, if you're not able to treat the person, you know, in their homes, if, they, if they're hungry, if they don't feel secure in their job, if they have these issues with education, attainment, safety, these are all things that, you know, I think we take for granted when it comes to healthcare. And I think a lot of, you know, there's other doctors that will say, you know, healthcare again is should be apolitical. And I'd say that, you know, I think they miss the point of our job as healers, right? Our job is to take care of our, I really like the, um, the thesis of doctors for defunding the police and some other groups I work with where, you know, healthcare doesn't just stop when you step out of my office or my ED. Like my, my commitment to your health does not just end there because there's clearly ramifications that happen much farther upstream that impact the downstream things that we see. And I think you bring a great point with the housing connected to CAMH. We still have housing connected to CAMH, but do you know how hard it is for me to fight to get a single patient in there? Because there's only so few beds and they don't move. And the people that are there, they do better than most, at least from the statistics we see from their lack of recidivism to the ED, to the access to help mental health care. We're able to do this for some patients. But the way that we arbitrarily, it, it sounds, it's like a lottery game. Like that, it, that's what we're really seeing. And I've seen patients, you, you, you know, you hear their stories, you know, they've been homeless, they've seen everything, they've almost died, they've had all these things happen to them. And then it was just a one chance interaction where, you know, they'll say, I, I got the stable housing or I, I connected with the support program group. We have groups, you know, like Loft. All these other groups that are in the community that are that try to connect housing with the healthcare and all the services people need, but again, it's it's patchwork systems. We have systems that don't look at this stuff holistically and think that okay, we have this big of a city. We're in the third largest city in North America if you discount Mexico City, and it it's a shame how people live here when we are one of the richest countries on earth, and it just. It boggles my mind some of the times as somebody whose parents were Ethiopian refugees and we came to this country really to make a better life and we did our best. We worked hard. My parents did everything they could. And still to see friends and other people around me just fall through the cracks through things that are just not their own fault for the most part, it's it's shameful. And I think that, you know, we waste the human potential that we have in the city all the time. And that that's what really gets me. That's why I got into psychiatry because I really do think... You know, if you're able to give people a chance, you'd be surprised what you get out of them. Um, 
Uh, talking to here on the Radical Reverend Show, if you just tuned in, uh, your host, Sherry DeNovo, we're talking health care um, today. And uh, we heard from Natalie Amera, um, Ontario Health Coalition Executive Director, uh, about, you know, their their struggle on all of our behalf. Now I'm talking to doctor, now Dr. Samir Boulay, um, a psychiatric resident um, in Ontario, about the mental health side of things. Um, Samir, you're, you mentioned your parents came from Ethiopia, you're a first-generation Canadian. What What's happening in immigrant communities uh, when uh, this kind of they, they walk into this world that we now live in in Toronto? Um, you know what? And you, I, I remember in one of our entries talked about um, you know uh, the those that suffer from mental health issues in immigrant communities and and the lack yeah, of real yeah. response there. Talk about that a little too. Yes, that is one of my favorite topics because there's a double-edged sword here. So uh, I worked a lot when I was a medical student around really trying to bring conversations to different groups. So we, we founded something called the Black Mental Health Speaker Series, where our goal was just to bring uh, mental health professionals initially to healthcare providers to try to teach them about, you know, you know, these are some issues that you might see with these patients that are a little bit different. This is the research that we have. This is how you can look at it. And when we were first throwing those uh, events, we didn't get that much interest from our colleagues, unfortunately, you know, due to time or, you know, other constraints. So we decided to open it up to the community to try to see if maybe they'd want to hear directly from the source. And the amount of need and the amount of people that came were unbelievable. By the last one that we held right before COVID lockdown happened, uh, we, we filled the auditorium in UFT. We had over 700 tickets, people uh, d- designing the comment. All that we were talking about in the groups uh, over there was, you know, the amount of illness in the community, whether it's, you know, physical or really mental, uh, the lack of access to resources, the lack of understanding of how the system works, the idea of mental health being a personal failing was a huge thing that kept coming up. And it, it was this dichotomy where, you know, the system, yes, absolutely does fail many times and it has criminalized many people in the past. And immigrants usually are very scared at times of using the system. But at the same time, there was this doubly self stigma, especially when it came to mental health, at least, where, you know, a lot of the stuff was never culturally competent to what they were doing. They never felt as if they could speak about what was going on in their communities, in their homes, because they felt like, you know, we were just an extension of the police service at many times, right? And I think what, what we notice and what I really notice in my work now is I work with other immigrant communities, right? I work with the refugee clinics. I really try to work on the ground. I work a lot with the Indian immigrants when they're coming here, especially uh, students. You, you see the, the isolate. They have different issues because a lot of them come here with a different expectation of what Canada will be like. You know, if I work hard, if I do my things right, you know, I'll be able to get ahead. And I, ha- I had a student the other day from, from India and he he was literally shocked he he became a drug user when he came here and he was literally shocked at the price of what it took to live apparently what the universities or the colleges had told him was it would cost maybe ten thousand dollars is how how much you had to show to be here for the year and he realized that his tuition on its own was almost fifteen thousand dollars and with that it it just added on with he couldn't find a room to stay in. he couldn't find places that were safe all of these things and it led him to drug abuse and it led him to being on the streets. And then the worst part, at least to me, if you want to take an economic argument to all of this, is when they come to the ED now and they become hospitalized due to these issues, it becomes exponentially more expensive than if we dealt with this with supportive housing. We have statistics like supportive housing versus going to the shelter is about three times the price. Usually supportive housing, sometimes you get from, depending on the location in the room, between 600 to $2,500 a month, whatever you need. Then we have... Um, the shelter system costing anywhere from two to six thousand dollars a month usually from some of the studies we've seen we've seen the police system cost anywhere from four to seven thousand dollars a night i believe the average federal inmate costs eleven one hundred eleven thousand dollars a year here and then the most expensive thing is being in the hospital that's what we never talk about the average stay in a hospital for a month i believe is thirteen thousand dollars and i would argue it's much higher for most in most places because you're being seen by doctors you're being taken up by staff all of these uh, ex- all these additional costs become added up but because we have this bizarre public private healthcare system where we're kind of you know again we're hiding the cost we're, we're pushing things around when you know if we dealt with this at the root it would be much cheaper we get better outcomes from the studies that we've seen and the, the comparisons we've seen around the world even even comparisons we've seen in our own city at different times 
So uh, again, I really argue this point that, you know, it's not just a moral argument. There's an economic argument here that, you know, we're not doing the best for we're we are the most educated population on earth, I believe, when I saw the statistics. It was us for South Korea. I think sixty six percent of people in Canada have a post secondary degree. You know, uh, from the, the the studies from uh, David Hilchansky at, at U of T, thirty four the thirty four uh, the people living in poverty are thirty four percent of the un- make under thirty four thousand dollars in a year. Fifty percent of those people have a post secondary uh, education. Like these are people that come from different countries, potentially have education. Uh, like my family, who were my mom was trained as an accountant, my uncle was trained as an engineer, all these degrees, and when they come here, they become taxi drivers and they become factory workers and hotel workers and. I think if you don't think that impacts their mental health when that happens and then they're not able to make sure their kids have a better life now, I think um, Canada is failing on its promise to create a better life for everyone when we have the resources here that would make it a much better place. And I think we're just misallocating them, to be completely honest. Uh, speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show, and it's an absolute delight, I have to say, to Dr. Samir Boulay about uh, challenges in the mental health care system. Uh, if you're listening in, and and by all means, by the way, just a little plug, please donate to the station, because this is the only station that you will hear conversations like this. Uh, and given the time that it takes to have conversations like this as well, so um, just go to www.cut.com. FM and hit donate uh, and mention the Radical Reverend Show. Um, we are so delighted to those that have already given and just encourage those who haven't to uh, support this work. Um, Samir, uh, you know, we've talked about immigrants. We've talked about the challenges. You just came off a 26-hour shift. I hope you have a <laughs> coffee in front of you <laughs> talking Absolutely. talking about a drug. Um, I wanted to talk about two things. Uh, number one, um, you know, when we think psychiatry, and there's been a lot of contention around this, um, you know, there's lots and lots of big pharma involved in your profession. Um, so I wanted yep. you to, you know, do some uh, comments about that. And then to me, um, mental health is is it's uh, I mean this is a tragedy on a massive level in Canada I, I think it's actually worse here than the states I mean even mm-hmm. under private you know insurance policies that a lot of people at work in companies have um, it's really difficult I mean to get coverage for mm-hmm. you might not need a psychiatrist psychiatrist covered by OHIP and try to get one I mean you're on a huge waiting list as you probably know if you're mm-hmm. waiting for a psychiatrist if you just want to talk to a, a you know, a social worker, an MSW who has some skills, if you just need somebody to talk to, um, this is going to cost you a fortune, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. for most people. Um, so maybe talk about that and, and also about Big Pharma. Absolutely. Uh, it's So Big Pharma, clearly, when it comes to psychiatry, there there is a connection that, you know, cannot be ignored and needs to be understood when, you know, we have a lot of medications, you know, that, I guess, you know, have been pushed to solve problems, right? You'll say that a lot of the times if you look at the early advertisements, I like to look at the old ads, old pharma ads for different antidepressants, uh, what they were saying, what what they think would come from it. And I think a lot of the times, you know, we've kind of exacerbated some of the problems that we see um, when we've created a society that keeps people ill to some degree. I, I like... Uh, how Dr. Gabor Mate puts it, where he's a, a family doctor that works in addictions out of Vancouver. And it's just in a society that is ill when it comes to, you know, people's access to resources, uh, their mental health care, their ability to connect to their family, their ability to have the resources they need, their ability to fund their own things, you know, to, to have a self-sufficient life. It's not really given. And I think when we use big pharma and we use the idea that, you know, Healthcare can solve all of these issues. I think we kind of missed the point of what healthcare initially was supposed to be. And it was just supposed to be a support to the lives of the people who are currently living in it. And I think that, you know, with big pharma, uh, if, if I could get off my soapbox for a little bit, I think it, it creates a very, it, it's a double edged sword because, again, we talk about how, yes, we need to do research into the newest and greatest biologics to understand, you know, different chemicals that are going on in the brain and the research that we can do. And we've we've come so far to understanding things, but at the same time, we really haven't, right? Some of the same treatments that we're using 
in psychiatry the main antipsychotics we, we really got them in the 50s you know our main our treatments that have the, the best outcomes for bipolar disorder lithium all these things again in the 50s and 60s like the, the things that we're doing i think specifically in psychiatry um kind of necessitate that whole idea that you know you need a psychiatrist to get well sometimes and i, I would kind of argue the opposite right i think you need to have a much healthier society so that psychiatrists are not needed as much and they're only there for the severe cases that have always existed and will continue to exist and we can make sure we treat those but when we have a system where you know you said it you know preventative healthcare, like being able to see a social worker that should be covered by ohip like we have programs i believe in the uk where you know people will get between eight to 16 sessions of you know cognitive behavioral therapy with a registered therapist that, that would be covered by the government and they'll find ways to make it affordable and uh, it make it accessible but here if you don't really have private insurance or if you're not willing to wait on a very long wait list and get all of these jump through all these hoops like i have to help people navigate the system in order to get a therapist right they're usually not they're not going to be able to stay with me because we have so many patients to see that are severely ill but to get people to see somebody what ahead of time before they know they're severely ill to the point they need to be in hospital they need to be suicidal or they need to be psychotic it's a shame right it's a it's a huge huge shame and uh, you know if you want to compare it to the american system I, I wouldn't hold it against you but at the same time we try to hold ourselves to try to say we have this great canadian universal healthcare system and i don't know if i've ever seen it in my time as a healthcare professional that universal the universality when it comes to the access to medications access to treatment on time like we have a, a sick care system i'd say you know if you're sick and you have severe illness we will treat you. But I've had cases where, you know, I'm working in other areas in internal medicine or I'm working in uh, the ICU. And we'll have these patients that, you know, were homeless, uh, drug addicted, having issues on the street, having these social issues. They'll end up, maybe they had COVID, maybe something really bad happened. They had an infection that went so badly because, you know, they weren't in the right state of mind. And they're, they're in the ICU for months or weeks. And you see the bills that are being sent to the government. And it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And at the same time, when the person is done, you send them back to the street. And to me, that is almost a like that is almost a fraud of, of healthcare. Like that is not what healthcare is supposed to be. It's supposed to be focused on the individual, trying to be trying to make their lives as good as they can be. And I think if uh, especially in mental health care, if we're not trying to put ourselves out of business by giving people the skills to do as much as they can in their own communities on the personal level in a preventative manner, uh, I think we're failing. And I think that's clear that we've been failing. When you see the rates of diseases of despair go through the roof in all the North American cities, but especially in Toronto, we see suicide, uh, depression rates, anxiety rates, uh, alcoholism, opioid use, it, it all going up to different degrees and even to, with younger people. So again, I say that if we're not looking at this from a holistic, you know, top-down level and trying to understand that there's bigger issues here, uh, I think we're going to keep missing the mark like we've been doing for the last little while. Uh, speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to Dr. Samir Boulay, and I have to say, Samir, it's so refreshing to hear you <laughs> uh, speak. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and you know, it's such a, there's so much work to do to change this, you know, uh, Titanic around um, uh, of, of, you know, especially with the increased privatization right across the board that's happening in Canada and in Ontario. Yes. Um, one thing, and, and here's just a, a heads up, uh, Pharmacare is being talked about federally and politically. And quite frankly, mm. this, uh, this, this, this little small, small uh, P pundit here, um, Sherry DeNovo, I, I think I, I would be surprised if we don't see the Liberals bring some kind of along with the NDP support some kind of pharmacare and they desperately need to shore up their their polling um so Absolutely. that of course it'll be a promise you know that'll never get fulfilled because yeah. it'll be for after the election um and yep. then they won't get elected you know so we, we 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 get that too but but I think it's in the wind right now um I mean that will help some but you're so right I mean uh, I remember as a housing critic and I it's it's depressing to talk about housing because there is none but um <laughs> in the city but um um, but I mean, it was very, very clear uh, uh, under that government, and it was a liberal government at the time, that it cost actually more, a lot more to keep somebody on the street um, than it did to provide them with decent housing, um, a huge amount more. And um, so, uh, so there's that. Uh, so it's not about the money. 
It's nope. about this kind of weird morality, I think. And I just would like your final take on that in the last few minutes that we've got here. Um, just, you know, the, you know, this morality that says if you're on the street and you have an addiction issue, it's your fault. Yeah, that is, I think that's a lot of the arguments that we're hearing with the safe supply stuff, too, that comes out where, you know, if you want to make the argument that, you know, uh, there are issues with the prescribing of opioids to different extents, sure, we can, we can have that argument. But to say that then we should throw it all away and do forced treatments is kind of missing the point of what's been going on in these communities. And I think we, we, we mix this political moral argument with something I believe is healthcare, which is a science, right? This is something we are constantly debating based on evidence and facts. And I think that the one thing that always drives this home to me that this is like we can solve these issues, but this is a moral argument. I remember I was reading, I was reading something about the, in 1989, the federal government unanimously came together. And I believe they, they all came together to say that they will end child poverty by the year 2000. Hmm. They noted that, you know, th this is something that we can do within our lifetimes. It was declining at that rate. Uh, you know, if we keep doing these things, we will do it. Uh, they did a, a follow-up, I believe in 2021, 2022. And, Child poverty in Ontario actually went up by a little bit since the they, they made that pledge in 1989. And it, to me, it's it's so shameful when you think of the idea of the wasted, I guess you want to say the word human capital, if this is how these people want to talk about humans. I think of these as people who deserve a chance. And I think when you look at the kid, I think we have also studies that show, you know, for every $1 you invest in early childhood education, you get seven out in the economy later on. And we have all these studies of, you know, if you're able to treat these people early or as early as possible, you know, make sure their schools are good, their families are healthy, things are going well at home, they have jobs, they feel like they have an opportunity to be a part of this society, they will do much better than any medication I could ever give them, right? Like that, that is what I'm trying to get to, where I can only do so much as a psychiatrist when it comes to, you know, building the, the psychotherapy skills, building the mental resilience, giving you the right medication to deal with the psychosis, depression, whatever is going on. But to miss the entire point that, you know, the government has used the, these topics as political pawns constantly. Like, that's what I really want to get into where, you know, what is going on here is actually very understood. I, I've been fortunate to, fortunate or unfortunate, I guess, to speak to Trudeau and speak for Trudeau for different different topics around gun violence, around uh, long-term care justice. I work with doctors for LTC justice. And they know the issues uh they, they i remember trudeau said this uh in an, in a in a back room interview in rexdale we brought him to rexdale community center into my area and we were talking and he said you know the the government is like a jack uh, a slot machine but the lever is kind of off the machine and your job is to kind of keep trying to put it in and pull and pull and hope till you get what you need and i was kind of looking at that and thinking about that that conversation saying that it's kind of missing that the point that there's human lives lost every day in this in what's going on in front of us and i know i, I don't want to i'm doing my best not to use profanity because if you hear how we doctors talk especially in the ed like in the psych ed or the people that are facing this issue in every single night and it's just shameful it yeah. is not a resource issue we have the resources absolutely it is it is a issue of will of using these people as political pawns of not understanding that these are upstream and downstream effects that are so much bigger than that person on the street yeah. using I, uh, I am so whatever. sorry Samir yeah. I'm going no to have to call it there but thank you so right. so much and again uh, just thank out you for there, having me absolutely a pleasure um, out there in listener land please keep donating so we can keep voices like Dr. Samir Abule on the air till next time on the Radical Reverend Show
This show is brought to you by CIUT Studios and made possible thanks to our friends at Metal Supermarkets. Metal Supermarkets is here to provide the solutions you need. Visit them at metalsupermarkets.com.